So you have to just choose what kind of hair you want to handle. And that, that's been what we've been focused on, right? We're trying to buy deals that have institutional potential. They have potential to be either the quality that institutions are going to buy or the locations that institutions are going to buy, but they have some kind of hair on it. So we can be the guys that really roll up our sleeves, get in there and do the work needed to be able to tee these up and hand them on a silver platter to an institutional end buyer when all is said and done. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Dylan Marma from the Requity Group. Today, we're talking about mobile home park investing and fund investing. Dylan is doing both of those. He owns apartments and he started buying apartments a few years ago and then more recently made a shift into mobile home park investing. Has partnered with a very excellent, experienced partner in the mobile home park space and they are scaling up there. So we talk about some of the systems that they have in place and the processes they use to find deals. We also talk about why they started a fund rather than just continuing to go after individual assets and syndicate them individually. That's the question I've always wondered is why build a fund rather than go after assets individually? And that is one of the things we discuss today. You're gonna learn quite a few things from a young guy who's doing a ton and has done a ton. So that is awesome. If you do enjoy the show, we ask that you take a quick second, go to your favorite podcatcher, hit the subscribe button so you'll get every episode of the Passive Wealth Strategy Show straight in your phone. And you can catch all this great content moving down the road. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Vote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. If you enjoy this show, as with any others you enjoy, and you're an Apple user, please take a second, go to the Apple Podcasts app, give us a rating or review. Five stars, if you don't mind, be much appreciated. That helps other people learn about the show and it helps me feel good about what we're doing here. I love seeing those reviews. I appreciate it so much. And uh, just a quick ask if you enjoy the show. Without any further ado, here we go with Dylan Marmon. Dylan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Taylor. It's great to talk with you. I've been uh, following you for some time. You've done quite a few things. Today, we're going to talk about mobile home parks. Before we dive into it, can you tell our listeners a bit about uh, yourself, your background, and uh, what you do? Yeah, so my background uh, started off when I was about 20 years old. I'm currently 26 years old. I uh, actually moved from upstate New York out to sunny San Diego with the dream in mind of being a real estate investor in some way, somehow, and ended up working for a real estate investment education company. And I got exposed to a lot of people in different areas of real estate. That includes, you know, single family fix and flip, wholesaling, commercial real estate, of course, multifamily retail. And I got to really see a lot of people investing in all different areas of the country using all different strategies. And for me, that was a great exposure to be able to pick and choose what's going to work best for my personality type and for my goals. And I started off, as most people do, buying some single-family rentals. I bought a single-family rental, and then I bought a duplex. And I quickly realized that the path of working a W-2 job and investing every year into another single-family rental just did not quite get me excited. And it seemed like a long and slow path. And in retrospect, I'm you know, very happy I made a decision to go into business on my own. And I sunk my teeth into multifamily and multifamily syndication, uh, learned everything I possibly could. Got into my first deal, which is 21 units. 
and ended up moving across the country to the Southeast because that's where I saw a lot of the action taking place to just really dive into space and network and get myself out there with a few partners that had experience in the space. They had an existing portfolio of about 800 units or so, but they had not at the time syndicated. So that was sort of my value add was to be able to partner with them to expand the portfolio and to grow into additional states and put the systems in place to be able to work with investor capital and effectively manage the, the business out of state. So we grew the portfolio from 800 to about 1600 units together. And it was a you know great experience for, for all of us. And that was up until early last year where we split ways and went different directions. And at that point, just largely due to just having different long-term goals, which I think is a natural progression that will take place in partnerships and started a new brand, new entity under the Equity Group and actually made a bit of a pivot into really diving into the mobile home park space, uh, just because I think there's a large opportunity there right now. And I think there will be for the next few years. So I've been channeling a lot of my time and energy into buying mobile home park deals. And we're on our third acquisition right now under the new new company. Uh, we just launched a $10 million fund. And that's what I'm excited about these days. Nice. Cool. So I feel like, you know, with since COVID's hit and everything, we have seen a lot more interest in the mobile home park space. I mean, it's been building over years and years and, you know, people have seen the advantages of mobile home parks. What for you kind of motivated that shift from multifamily to mobile home parks? Because you're pretty well established in the multifamily space. I mean, that's a a pretty big shift to make to get into uh, that different asset class. It is a big shift. And I, I'm sure I'll always have my hands involved with apartments on some level or another. I still have a lot of personal investments and you know, GP investments in the apartment world that I'm, I'm involved with. And I, I plan to continue to do more down the road. But what I saw with mobile home parks, I, I see a lot of similarities to where the apartment industry was just a few years ago. So I feel like witnessing what's taken place in the apartment industry from starting as a spectator to eventually being someone that's in the game over the last five years, being able to witness watching the ability to buy at you know a seven or an eight cap in quality markets and, and still having value-add upside in the apartment space to, to watching cap rates compress and more capital flood into the market and more sophisticated buyers flood into the market. And today's market where we're looking at a low cap rate environment where value add is really where the opportunity is for the most part for you know people that are trying to get their start and chase more opportunistic investments. I see a lot of the same similarities with the mobile home park space. And I connected with a partner that had has a you know, large track record in the space, has done about 2,500 doors or so in the mobile home park space. So I'm bringing in my experience from the apartment world, about 50 million in apartments, and he's bringing in his experience, about 50 million in mobile home parks, and we're forming a new entity to uh, target value-add mobile home parks, right? I think that when you look at the MHP space, I like to I like to joke and say that you know a few years ago, investors, the prices that investors were buying, they were they were spoiled in a sense. And when you look back in multifamily, it's the same story, right? When you look at the 2015 prices, people were spoiled. And I think anyone in today's market wishes they had bought everything they, they could get their hands on back then, right? But we can't, we can't necessarily play that game. But I think I can look at the market today with mobile home parks and see that, yes, it looks more competitive than it was. Yes, it is more competitive 
than it was a few years ago. But I also feel I have a decent understanding as to what's possible. And I don't think it's reached a peak of competitiveness or cap rate compression as to where it could be. I think a lot of buyers are still more simplistic, just buying on in place uh, cap rate going in, we'll say. Whereas I think that the low hanging fruit, the days of the low hanging fruit are gone. I think that that was a few years ago. Today, you need to be a good operator and you need to be able to be a bit opportunistic to be able to create substantial returns. Obviously, the substantial is a relative for everyone. But if you're in the space of you know, working with retail investor capital and creating you know, returns that are on the higher side of you know, the return profile, the way you're going to be able to do that in today's world is to be able to find a problem and solve it. I, I spoke to someone recently that said, you have to just choose every good deal these days is going to have some kind of hair on the deal. So you have to just choose what kind of hair you want to handle. And that's been our whole that that's been what we've been focused on, right? We're trying to buy deals that have institutional potential. They have potential to be either the quality that institutions are going to buy or the locations that institutions are going to buy, but they have some kind of hair on it. So we can be the guys that really roll up our sleeves, get in there and do the work needed to be able to tee these up and hand them on a silver platter to an institutional end buyer when all said and done. That's a big part of the conversation today is the these institutions planning or fixing to to get more um, of a footprint in the mobile home park space. And one of the things that I, I, I suppose I wonder about in this, in the mobile home, home park space is there's so much for want of a better way to put it. There's so much like regulatory burden on mobile home parks. Like if you want to get in and add value, right. Or add more pads or something like that, you're going to have to get your municipality to sign off on it. You're going to have to get a lot of approval, zoning, blah, 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 to make that happen. And it seems like it would really constrain the opportunity for investors to make a return or to, to, be, to be opportunistic, if we're going to you know, keep using that word. So you know, how do you, uh, I guess, how do, you, how do you deal with that? And you know, as, as a business owner, not, you know, focus, spend too much time on trying to tee a, tee a deal up, get all these approvals and then, you know, get a no. And then oh, now we got to move on to the next one. How, how are you handling that? No, it's a great point. And you really need to know what to look for when you're both on the acquisition side, as well as the due diligence side to make sure that you're checking all the boxes needed when it comes to your utility systems or the local city and county regulations to make sure that you're able to execute on the business plan that you set for yourself. So on one side, that works to our advantage, right? There's a reason that there's typically a slight decline in the total supply of mobile home parks across the country year over year. It's, I believe it's slightly less than 1% lost per year uh, because parks are being, they're going vacant, they're getting bought up by developers, and there's a number of reasons. And there are some developers in the space that will you know, build new parks, but because of a lot of NIMBY, not in my backyard <laughs> regulations, you'll, you'll run into challenges with the, the development process. And in a lot of areas where you might be able to develop, the economics just simply don't make sense anymore. So in, from that side, it works to our advantage because we have limited supply and we have increased demand. And it's even increased demand when it comes to the consumer side because they're not able to build more. There's a large 
demographic that's still home parks and they're not building more they, with high occupancy rates just with word of mouth marketing because of the way that they're they're positioned but yes on the on the buy side it, it's very important if you have say an infill component to the to the deal which means that you're actually taking a home and you're moving it in to an existing lot or in some cases you might actually be developing a lot from a from a vacant piece of land and then moving a home in when you have an infill component you want to make sure that Either you know you want to make sure the zoning is proper so you can you can comfortably be able to move the home in place. Uh, you want to make sure that the lot is big enough to be able to fit uh, you know park model home into the community, and you want to make sure that any homes that you're bringing in are up to regulation. There's some cities that that will say you have to have a home of at least a 2000 vintage if you bring it in, right? So if you didn't know that and you you only budgeted to buy 1980s homes, you know used homes at 10 grand a piece then you're going to be in a tough spot because you you under budgeted, right? So you really have to be able to do a lot of your homework up front for infill. And the same thing goes with, you know, due diligence as a whole. I think you really want to make sure you understand um, work, that that was a big shift from multifamily where everyone is city water, city sewer. Now you have a lot more private utility systems and you really want to be able to understand the mechanics behind those and what your alternatives are if they fail in any instance. Another topic that you know, comes up in the mobile home park space is actually sourcing these deals. You know, I've spoken with other investors who go straight to the owners and, you know, do massive like mailing campaigns and things like that. And in the multifamily space, for example, most of these deals come through, you know, basically a handful of brokers in each market control all the supply. Mobile home parks, it seems different though. And it seems like scattered all over based on like the size and everything like that. How are you, how are you guys like sourcing deals and where are you finding like the best use of your time as far as, you know, tracking down owners, making offers and finding that, that value opportunity. Yeah. So that is a, a big difference coming from the multifamily and apartment world to going into the mobile home park world. You, you'll find that number one, yes, sales brokers are not as regional because there's simply not enough volume in one market for them to be able to be able to make a living off that. They, you know, in Atlanta, you, you have, I don't even know how many, maybe a dozen really strong sales brokers that only target large apartment buildings in Atlanta. With mobile home parks, you'll have more regional brokers that will cover entire sec- sections of the country, in some cases, the entire country, because it is there's, there's a much lower total supply uh, when you look at the total amount of communities in the park space versus the apartment space. So brokers, yeah, definitely operate a bit differently. You also find managers it's very hard to find quality property management, especially if you're taking on some of these heavier lift projects. I find that in the apartment world, there's a lot of very sophisticated property management companies with some serious scale that are able to manage your apartments well at a reasonable fee. With the within the mobile home park world, there are there are a few big name property managers out there, but many operators believe that you have to manage them yourself if you want to get the best outcome. And that means that you're going to take on, and that might steer a lot of people away from this space because that's a whole nother job in itself is building a property management company and having to manage these yourself because you don't make a ton of profit in property management, but it does give you the control you need of the deal. So I just want to point that out because those are two, two big differentiators. And then when it comes to deal sourcing itself, there's your big MH brokers, that are great to always be in contact with because they'll have on-market stuff and then occasionally off-market stuff as you build the relationships. I like to always 
make our rounds and, and we're still very open to doing a deal that gets listed through a MH broker. There's your smaller brokers, which are one of my favorite deal sources, but they're sometimes harder to find and keep in contact with. If they're a more local player that does, you know, they, they sell offices and retail buildings and they get a hold of a, a mobile home park occasionally, they, they don't have as large of a buyer's list. Uh, they're not able to get the word out quite as much. And if you have a good relationship like that, you can get some really good pocket listings from a broker like that. And then in addition to that, we do a lot of direct sourcing. We have a database with over 10,000 know, qualified um, leads with phone numbers that we we actively will market to and reach out to. So we're constantly checking out deals every week through our direct marketing efforts. So we really just try to tap into all of the marketing strategies possible. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Another, another uh, thing I wanted to address was building a fund or creating a fund to go after, you know, these assets and the thought process behind that strategy compared to doing individual syndications and also how you even really decide like the size of your fund. It's a $10 million fund, but why 10 million and not 20 or why, why 10 million and not five or, you know, how do you, how do you go through that decision-making process and, and decide what to do with your fund? It's certainly a, shift. I've wanted some form of uh, fund for, for quite some time. It's always been something on my radar. I, I see advantages from both perspectives. I think that if you have a fund behind you as an operator, you're able to use that as leverage to get access to more deal flow, communicating with brokers or working with owners. It just gives you a little bit more street cred when you actually have the cash in your hand versus saying, oh, I'm going to go <laughs> raise all of the, the money on this deal, right? Don't worry, I've done it before, right? Even though you might have done it so many times that there's always a little bit of skepticism, I would say. So I think the fund does help when it comes to just increasing your deal flow. I think it helps really uh, align the interests of the operation group to, to make sure that they're buying a good blended portfolio and, and working on one project versus having you know six different projects. Because if you have one good project, you might double down on that and maybe lose sight on another project or something like that. But I think as a fund, you're, you're constantly looking at the fund level performance and making sure that every property within the fund is playing its part there. And then I think from the investor perspective, they're getting diversification. And the reality is that no one likes to talk about is that once in a while, there will be a dog that comes along as an acquisition, right? It's our job to be able to avoid those at all costs, right? And to try to catch everything we can on the acquisition side, the due diligence side, and put the proper uh, structures in place. But if you have one dog out of you know eight deals that you've done, that then the deal that is not performing as well as the other ones does not hurt anyone quite as much, right? And I think a lot of the investors that were we're working with they're you know they're high net worth investors and they vary in the size of their their overall net worth but i think a lot of times investors you know may have a few hundred thousand we'll say and they're putting 50 or 100,000 into just one deal and that's a large that's a large share of their total capital that they're putting into one deal and really hoping that that one deal is the lucky pick of the litter that that outperforms you know very well right so i i think the fund is definitely beneficial because you get diversification that you know minimizes your exposure to just one market or just one deal. I, I will say it's definitely a different crowd of investors that we work with oftentimes. It's investors that they believe in the diversification aspect. They believe in us as the operators, of course, and they're concerned about investing a portion of their capital to get a blended return of, of mobile home parks. Whereas 
deal by deal investors tend to be more particular about just trying to either analyze, interpret your underwriting or make their own underwriting towards each deal and sort of pick and choose. And, you know, again, hope, hope that they can outsmart the sponsor by picking only the best deals. So it's, you know, it, it, it is a different model. You do attract a, a bit of different investors. I will say on average, the check size is usually larger on the commitment amounts that you're getting to a fund because they are, of course, getting spread out over number of deals. So people do feel comfortable putting in larger check sizes, usually of you know several hundred thousand. So yeah, it's it's a totally different ballgame in some regards. And I think you have to be a lot more thoughtful about how you're deploying your capital as well. You know, I've seen fund funds where everyone raises all of the money up front, for instance, right? And then they're paying a pref out on all of the money raised up front. And then there's fees that are you know, sometimes there's you know, astronomical fees, right? You have to read the fine print and get get clear on what the fees are. But you know, you can see funds where where it is you have that sort of black box feeling, and then that back with the wrong deployment strategy of the funds can really water down the returns overall. I think if you run a fund the right way and use a, I say the right way. Obviously, everyone's got their own perspective on this, but I think the my, in my view, the right way is doing a capital call approach. So you're only pulling in the money as needed. For the deals, you're being thoughtful about when you're calling in the capital, so you're not paying a pref on money that's sitting on the sidelines, and then you are being thoughtful about how much you're going to have on on the sidelines for reserves and contingencies and things along those lines. And then, you know, of course, you have a fee structure that really works well for you. I, I think, you know, if, if you have the the right operator and people that are being thoughtful about how to run and manage the fund successfully, I think they can be great vehicles. Nice. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Dylan, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I'd like to say the best investment that I made other than my education is my relationships. I think this is a relationship-based business and the contacts that I've built over the years and the relationships that I that I invest my my time, you know, energy into mean the world to me. And I think I think that's going to continue to be a large contributor to anyone's long-term success. Nice. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment. I bought a turnkey single family rental at one point and I didn't lose money, thankfully, but I didn't make a whole lot either. I made a, a little bit of cash flow along the way. And I think I ended up selling it for, for practically the same price that I had purchased it for. But I bought that before I had much experience or much understanding on how to properly value the market and, and the property itself. I'm not not completely bashing single family saying that, but I think with, especially with turnkey properties, you, you really need to know your numbers. You really need to be able to pay attention to who you're buying it through. Cause I think I, looking back, I think I overpaid for the property compared to what I should have been paying at the time. That's something you always want to avoid, especially with turnkey, but absolutely. Big mistake. Yep. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? What I would encourage any investor or real estate entrepreneur to focus on is what I learned as slowing down to speed up. Uh, when you when you slow down to speed up, what I mean by that is that this is a marathon. This is quite a, a journey. And I think it's as much as we want to you know, conquer the world and, you know, buy hundreds of millions in real estate. I, I think the way that you 
do that successfully is by focusing on building the proper foundation. And that's going to start with, of course, investing into yourself first. And then once you have some momentum and you're building your portfolio, it's investing into your systems. It's investing into your asset management, your acquisition systems, your team, building the infrastructure that is set to scale. That's my big focus right now is continuing to get to where we not only have the roles defined for our team, but we also have specific KPIs tied to each of those roles. And if we can step back and look at our company from a higher level, we can clearly see what's going on, where we're doing well, where we're not, and be able to effectively diagnose anything going on from a high level just by seeing, are we hitting the goals and, and are we tracking the right metrics? I think that that's what's going to help build us into a company that can effectively grow and scale successfully, right? Versus just trying to be in the mindset of, oh, I can just do everything and just kind of shoot from the hip along the way. Uh, I think we have to you know, take a step back to build the proper systems. Well, Dylan, thank you for joining us today, bringing us all this knowledge. Like I said earlier, I think mobile home parks are obviously getting more popular and with good reason. And I appreciate you bringing us the knowledge about building a fund as well. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. You can search my name on LinkedIn. You'll find me there. And you can also visit our website, therequitygroup.com. That is the equity with an R before it, group.com. Nice. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week and we will talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.